Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Such excitement. It's a Friday morning. Looking forward to this talk. We're delighted to have Dr. Roy Beveridge with us today from Humana, and he'll be introduced to us by Scott Wallace. Scott is a um, Batten Fellow at the University of Virginia's Batten Institute for Entrepreneurship and Innovation and a Distinguished Fellow here at Geisel. Today's speaker has no conflict of interest other than he's coming from Humana as the CMO, but no financial conflicts of interest for the discussion. And uh, Scott, will you come tell us about today's speaker? Thank you. Nice. <laughs> Yeah. Do such obvious conflicts of interest have to be disclosed, I think is the question. But the, the standard opening uh, of an introduction is usually a passing reference to the honor of, of introducing the speaker. Um, what isn't mentioned is just how much fun it is to get to introduce someone whom you deeply admire. Dr. Beveridge has had a distinguished career as a clinician, a teacher, a researcher, and most recently as a business leader. And he has had a singular impact on the culture of Humana, transforming it from one of denial, making money by denying claims, to one of health. While an absolutely noble endeavor, it has also been a brilliant business strategy. You may be aware of uh, the, the work that Humana has done to improve the health of its subscribers, and that was a major motivation for the nearly $34 billion offer to purchase Humana that was made by Aetna last year. Dr. Beveridge has, by example and influence, raised the status of physicians within Humana, giving voice to their mission of health and of care. He is the irrepressibly proud father of three adult daughters, two physicians, and an attorney, to keep them all honest, I think. <laughs> Dr. Beveridge's presence here today is the culmination of an 18-month effort, possible only as a result of his patience, his flexibility, and his endless generosity. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Roy Beveridge to Dartmouth-Hitchcock. <laughs> So thank you very much. Um, I will tell you that um, I'm surrounded by two screens here, pieces of paper and other screens here. I am not um, uh, technologically good. So uh, actually, I'm not good in a lot of things. Um, so we'll, we'll see how this works. Um, thank you. That was a very kind uh, introduction. I, I will tell you there's um, some anxiety on, on my part in that for the people in this room, I, I hope um, you recognize the um, profound influence that you all have uh, from Dartmouth in the, the realms of uh, policy, government, and, and industry. Um, so I was saying to, to, to Scott, um, if I use the example of uh, bringing uh, calls to Newcastle, will people know what I'm talking about? And he said, no, you should talk about bringing firewood to New Hampshire. So that's kind of the way I, I feel um, uh, right now. 
I do have three daughters. Um, my eldest daughter um, finished training at the University of Chicago. She's a dermatologist now in the north side of Chicago. My youngest daughter, for any of the residents here, um, is on the CCU rotation. And when I showed her my, my presentation, she said, Dad, make this more simple. So there are a few other slides in here, um, primarily for the people who might have been up all last night, and for those of you who are professors and smarter people than I, um, you don't have to pay attention for the first uh, a few slides. So when I talked to my daughter, um, and she said, you know, why did you move to the dark side? Which is really great when your daughter asks you that question. Um, I thought it was kind of important to talk about what, what insurance plans are. So let's just start. So coffee's kicking in, caffeine, caffeine levels are, are improving. Um, insurance plans, whether you sell health insurance or whether you sell insurance to insure your boat, is basically the pooling of losses. It's really looking at spreading the costs of a few untoward events to a larger group. And so this, this results in a, in a risk transfer. The risk transfer is to an insurance company, and the insurance company accepts responsibility for events. They then recognize that there are going to be payments of claims for these events, and the insurance, and one of the things that people kind of forget is that the, there's a financial restoration in insurance. So the insured person is really meant to be restored to their financial position prior to the event. Okay? That's insurance. What do insurance companies do? Well, let's, uh, let's talk about that. They do three basic things. They assess a population, they set price premiums, and they work to reduce the chance of a loss. This slide is going to come back at least once, and we're going to talk about how this influences what's happened in the past uh, 10 years. So to assess a population, Really what people are looking for is how likely is that something to go wrong, how often will it go wrong, and how severe will each event be. So if you take a company like Humana, we have 500 actuaries sitting in a basement in Louisville. I mean, not figuratively, but okay. 500 actuaries who are really looking at that's some of these events. And then they look at setting price premiums. So they're looking at how expensive is each of these events going to be? What's the premium needed to be to A, make sufficient money and have enough reserve to pay for things that year and have reserves for the year after? Every insurance company looks at how do you reduce the chance of losses. All right. So what programs can be used? There are enough of us old enough in this room to remember when we were children, we didn't have car seat belts. Remember all that for the us? Do you know who pushed the government to get car seat belts? It was, people think it was Ralph Nader. It was actually the Insurance Institute 
who basically said, we want to reduce the chance of a loss. It was a business decision. It was all good for us, but it was a business decision. Okay. Um, insurance plans of yesterday. By the way, hopefully the caffeine's kicking in because quite soon we'll start doing things of, of, of importance. <laughs> commercial. Commercial, we know, was something that was put together by employers to keep employees happy, to protect them, and to ensure that they stayed at work. That was really what happened in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. In the 60s, we had Medicare, Medicaid, in that big bucket that we've had in this country, the uninsured for a long time, right? All right. Well, where are we today? Hasn't changed that much, but we now have original Medicare, and we have Medicare Advantage. I would suspect that very few people here understand what Medicare Advantage really is, so we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that, because this type of plan and this payment methodology has resulted in the government and so many others thinking about how the new payment structure and the new quality goals are going to be put forward. And just to remind people, we now have exchanges. We have public exchanges and we have private exchanges. Remember that the public exchanges is the ACA, ACA, and the Affordable Care Act. We still have uninsured, and we certainly still have Medicaid. Okay, this is probably the last simple slide. I keep saying that, but it probably really is. Medicare Advantage is, is different. Let's review what Medicare is. Medicare has Part A, Part B, Part C, and Part D. And if you talk to people in policy worlds, they, they seem to have this stutter. They'll say, Medicare Part B, B is a boy. Everyone says that. Or they'll say, I'm talking about Medicare Part D, D is a dog. Okay? It, it took me years to kind of get that out. But, um, so everyone knows Part D, D is drugs, right? We're going to put that across to the side. Medicare Part A we think of as insurance, right? Well, it's actually not insurance. It's a payroll tax of almost 3% on every single penny that everyone in this room and everyone that you know of earns. It's with a lot of people. But the important part of Medicare Part A is that it's not an insurance product. It's an unlimited funding pool for people as they get more ill. Do people in this room recognize how many people are moving into the Medicare space every day right now? It's 10,000. 10,000 Americans are moving into Medicare every single day right now. We have an unlimited pool that these folks can draw against. Yes, there's an 80%, 20% uh, uh, copay, but it's a really important thing to understand. Medicare Part B, B is in boy. See, I'm getting you to think like, you know, you're on the dark side. You're, you're now working for an insurance company. This basically is the same. It's the same thing. It uh, pays for all physician services, and it pays for outpatient services. It pays for 
the outpatient chemotherapy drugs that uh, that you use um, on uh, in, in, in the system here. And Medicare Advantage is actually Medicare Part C. No one ever thinks about Medicare Advantage as Part C, but it is. It's defined as Part C. And it is meant to cover all services in A and B. It's meant to have a transfer of funds from CMS to an insurance company. And the insurance company is supposed to help control costs in a global way. So C is an attempt to combine A and B and begin to control costs. <coughs> Just so everyone knows, Medicare Advantage is growing, and it's growing very quickly. This is a slide from the New York Times. Everything in the New York Times is correct, right? We all agree with that. But what you can see is that the growth in Medicare Advantage continues to increase. It's now at um, almost 17 million people. That's 31% of all Medicare patients are now Medicare Advantage. That number is going to continue to increase. Now, how did, how did the Affordable Care Act, ACA, ACA, how, how did that change things for the insurers? Very important thing that most people don't, don't think through. So we all know that ACA did some really great things, right? It removed the, the limits in terms of what a person can have insurance for. So remember, it used to be you buy plans for 1 million or 1.5 million. Now it's unlimited. So if someone has a rare orphan disease and it's going to cost $20 million, they still have insurance through all of these ACA plans and through all government plans. So that's good. And for the younger people here and all of us with you know, children in our 20s, in their 20s, not our 20s, um, this is good because people through the age of 27 through ACA now can be under insurance through their parents' plans. Everyone agrees this is all good, right? Yes? Okay, the other thing that it did <coughs> was that it fundamentally changed how payers were paid. So prior to ACA, the way that every Medicare Advantage plan got paid was in a risk-adjusted manner. And the risk adjustment's really important. That means that if you're very healthy, the government pays the plan a small amount of money per month, per member, per month, PM, PM. If your patient has diabetes and 10 other medical diseases, the government pays the plan more per month to take care of this person. That's the way it's been for many, many years. What the government did with ACA was they said, in addition to this, we're now going to start paying you based on, the, on how well, what the quality is of the group of patients that you're taking care of. So if you've got a diabetic, it's not just that you've got someone who's got diabetes, but we pay you more or less based on how that patient with diabetes does. If the patient is controlled well, you're going to get paid more money. STARS scores. Heat us, okay? So 
The other thing which is interesting is that this legislation said that there is now a restriction in terms of the medical expense ratio. Now, everyone in this room is going, oh my, why is he talking about NERs? This is all boring. Well, the NER is the rate, is the expense ratio of how much a plan can spend in terms of all the administration plus all the profit. What this legislation did, it restricts for every government Medicare Advantage patient the amount of profit that any payer can ever get on their entire population. And I think most of us think that's a good thing, right? So that's 15% expense in terms of how you manage everything that you do for the patient plus the profit. Well, when I talk to my medical colleagues, and yes, I still have some friends who see patients who still talk to me, so that's good. Um, what we find is that every single doctor says, the world is changing, the world is changing very quickly, this is very scary, right? Do, do clinicians here have some angst in terms of what's happening in the world in the next three to five years? Yes? Okay, if you're not, you are, you are extremely unusual. Everyone, everyone's worried. Let me do this from the payer standpoint. Look at some of these, these articles here. Whether you're from Deloitte, whether you're from any consulting company, whether you're from anywhere. What people are saying here is that the world of the payer is changing just as quickly or maybe faster. So read some of these, you know, some of these scrolls here. If payers don't make significant changes, they will go out of business. All right? So you got anxiety? Trust me, payers have anxiety also. Okay. Now, I'm going to move into the stick figure world to explain how I think about things in terms of payment. Okay? I recognize that you all have very smart professors here who have taught you the, the right way. I'm going to teach you ways that probably aren't right, so just, just acknowledge that. Um, all right. Let's talk about clinic-based care, the way that most of us were trained in terms of seeing patients. Right? Basically, you have a physician in the center, um, and you've got the a whole bunch of, a whole panel of, of patients, okay? So, what's the physician's or the doctor's role? Well, it's to bring them into the clinic, right? Is there anything else that you're supposed to do? No, not really. You bring your patients in. And um, so you see a patient, and you get paid. <laughs> That's it. That's the old system. All right. Does anyone disagree with stick figure 101? Right. That's how how we get paid. Right. That's fee for service. So, is that changing? Uh, yes. Why is it changing? Well, for the time we've had fee for service, I can't tell you that there's any clinician in this room who should be really proud 
of what's happened to the population health um, of, of our country. So let's review a couple of simple, simple facts. 50% of patients with hypertension have uncontrolled blood pressure in the United States. 80% of patients with hyperlipidemia don't have adequate cholesterol control. Almost half of patients with diabetes don't have good glycemic control as the measures and the quality scores that we, we uniformly, we, meaning we as the United States, publish. So we're all getting sicker. And let's now look at our costs. Everyone has seen this slide a thousand times, okay? So we've just said that our population is not getting healthier. But our costs, as you see, are accelerating even faster over from 1980 in the last 30 years. And we are spending almost 18% of our national wealth on the care of sick patients. That would be okay, except that three out of four dollars are now spent in chronic care situations. What I mean by chronic care, I mean diabetes type 2, COPD, diseases associated with smoking, diseases associated with hypertension, etc. All right? Does everyone, has everyone heard, you know, costs are unsustainable? Yes? Because if you haven't, you haven't read a newspaper in five years, okay? And I know for the interns and residents, you have not read a paper in the last five years, so that's okay. Right. Now, insurance companies, you know, a number of years were asked to control costs, okay? Who were we asked by? We were asked by the government, we were asked by the employers, we were asked by the people who are paying the premiums. Okay? So, you remember the slide? Remember the left side of the slide? Assess the population, price premiums, work to reduce the chance of a loss? That's what insurance companies do. So let's actually review. Insurance companies were asked to deal with this problem. They were, they were told, please help control costs. So let's now review what they did. They assessed the population. They actually tried to move people from you know, a very sick category to maybe someone else will insure them. Okay? Not, not exactly what everyone wants. They increased the price premiums. They shifted the cost to patients. And we, cha we changed the name from patients to members, from members to consumers. We started high deductible plans. Right? A third of all insurance, commercial insurance, is now high deductible, shifting a very significant burden onto you know, the, the population. Now, they also work to reduce the chance of a loss. This is what insurance companies do, right? You saw this slide four. So let's, let's review what, what happened. We, they, me, us, implemented prior authorizations. How many people in this room like prior authorizations? Yeah, I figured, okay? We increased medical reviews. We required primary care physicians to see a patient before they went to a specialist. So as opposed to Mrs. Jones saying, I've got a bad back, I'm going to go see an orthopedic surgeon, 
most insurance plans, whether we're from United or from you know, Humana or Blue Cross, said, you gotta see a primary care and get a referral. How many of the specialists of the 1,400 physicians at Hitchcock really liked that one? No one. We narrowed the networks, which is a problem for a big teaching hospital, because as, a narrow, as the networks were narrowed, people began to look at cost. And so, you know, august institutions like yours sometimes are taken out of particular networks. That doesn't help you, just I'm not sure that's, that's good for anyone. And then, just to make your lives even more un unpleasant, they went back and said, we're going to negotiate prices because we think you're getting paid too much. Your surgical procedures are too expensive. We're going to pay you less, and we're going to restrict who you see. Does that kind of sound like what's happened the last 20 years, folks? Yes? Okay. Well, how successful was the insurance companies in doing so? We were really good at everything that we just said. We made every physician un unhappy. We really went out of our ways to, to try to control this at a bottleneck. But were we successful? What's happened to medical inflation in the United States? Has it really slowed down? Well, depends on who you look at, but let me tell you, if you're a family, if you're doing it from a consumer standpoint, your annual medical costs for a family have continued to increase since 2011. The mean health insurance cost, if you're an employer, has continued to increase. So I will tell you, it's not worked. It's been a failure. So enter something called value-based care. What is value-based care? I'm going to go back to the stick figures. Remember, I'm, I'm a fairly simple person. But folks, value-based care is how we're all going to get paid for the next 20 years. So let's go over this for a little bit. Now, value-based care is something that um, relates to how value-based payment occurs coupled with how the clinician practices medicine around taking care of a population. Now, this equation that you've got here is not something that Dr. Teisberg or any of the very smart people here have ever written about or anything else because this is not written anywhere. This is, this is from Humana and me. And, um, so for any of the people who are trying to learn about population health, don't remember this. Don't remember this equation, okay? But from a practical standpoint, let me tell you why it works. And let me tell you, from a clinician standpoint, how it makes sense in terms of thinking about how we're going to have to change how we practice medicine and who we're going to have to work with. So value-based care, how you practice medicine, and the payment structure that allows you to do it. Okay, that is value-based care. But if you don't have an integrated approach in doing so, you can't actually have a population health tool. So let me go through what some of that means, okay? So 
given I've just told you that I haven't written books, I'm not necessarily the expert, um, and everything that I've just told you is not anything that your very smart professors espouse, um, why should you look at the next seven slides? Um, well, we gave you free free coffee and free 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 food, so that would be one. Um, the second is that uh, Humana has actually done 30 years of population health. So we've done this for a long time. We have three million people in Medicare Advantage programs, so we actually do this with about 50,000 employees in terms of getting this done. In Medicare Advantage, our patients stay with us for seven to eight years. So think about that. You've got someone who signs up at the age of 70, and they stay with us for about eight years. That's usually till the end of their lives. Okay? Now, do you know what the average retention rate is for regular insurance? It's about 2.2 years. So in the Medicare Advantage product, people stay. They're not leaving, which allows us to invest and really take care of this population. So some, some milestones, just so people know that this, this, this actually works, and I'll show you more data. But for patients with chronic uh, conditions, we've actually demonstrated in the last couple of years a 44% reduction in hospitalization rates. Hard, hardcore published uh, numbers. We have more than a million patients right now in special health insurance programs to help them get healthier and work with the clinician in terms of how they're taking care of our member, the patient's, the, the physician's patient. We have, and it's not a small group, we have 45,000 physicians currently working in, this, in these value-based relations. So I'm not talking about you know three little groups of uh, seven people and two little hospital systems that are doing this. I'm talking about 45,000 folks who have been paid you know 80 million dollars in terms of uh, bonuses uh, last year, and about four million gaps in care that were closed. Meaning that when you look at evidence-based medicine, we go back and work with the physician and say these are things that you didn't do. If you want to improve the health of your patient, these are things you need to do. So that's, that's quite a few. Now, let's go back to this slide. I've now begun to say that the payer is looking at how we begin to work with the physician. And I've begun to say that we need to improve the health of the population, the population that, that, that we serve. I guarantee you that most people in the room are sitting there going, yeah, you know, that's, they're saying this, but I don't really believe them. Well, let, let me just be really pretty clear about this. I'm showing you our secret sauce in terms of how we make money. We as a company made a lot of money last year. We make money by working with our value physicians to make them make more money and for them to have a healthier population of patients. The healthier the population of patients they see in a risk-adjusted world, the more money we make. 
So a fundamental thing, if you listen to, if you remember nothing else from today, is that for the next number of years, as people start talking about making patients healthier, it is not some altruistic comment. It's a business imperative that the payer world is moving into. The healthier the populations that they can influence, can work with physicians on, the more money they're going to make, the more money the provider is going to make. Is that blunt enough? Yes? Okay. Well, back to the stick figures. We're going to talk about how we think about population um, medicine, okay? So let's review. In population medicine, it's not that you see, you know, it's not that you're a physician, you're in your office, and 30 people come at you. That's that, you know, you're still taking care of one patient at a time, okay? But what's interesting is that if you look at these 45,000 people that we're talking about in value-based relations right now, if you're a primary care physician, the average amount of time that you spend with each patient each time is not 12 minutes, which is the, tip, the typical time in fee-for-service, right? Are there any family practitioners here, primary care doctors? Does everyone acknowledge that most primary care doctors spend about 12 to 15 minutes per, because that, that's the national average, 12 to 15 minutes um, with, with their patient. That's, that's, that, that's, the, that's the norm in the, in the country. And so with our 45,000 patients, the average time that someone spends is about 30 minutes per time. And they see the patient six to 12 times depending on their risk-adjusted score. Most people in primary care have a panel of 2,300 patients. That's the typical panel. A typical panel in value, value meaning that you're taking some financial responsibility for this patient, is between 500 and 700. So let me say that again. The panel size is dramatically smaller and people spend a lot more time with the patient. Okay? Got it? No. Does that, that, that cause some... Uh, that, okay, got it. All right. So when you're, when you're seeing patients in a, a population-based uh, way, you're seeing a, a patient at, at a time, right? So you, you see a patient. But then what you're really doing is you're asking yourself... Um, in my group of 600, who else is like this person? And what do I need to start doing to get them better? Because remember, I'm being paid based on whether someone's healthier. Okay? And so what you realize is that we all went to medical school, and we were told, you see a diabetic, you write long-acting, short-acting, insulin, whatever. I'm an oncologist, so I... I really didn't know what to do when I saw a diabetic, just so you're clear. And, um, but, but, but in the primary care world, in the value world, you sit there and you say, well, okay, in the old world, in fee-for-service, I'd give them a prescription for insulin, and I'd send them off on their way, and I'd say, go lose 20 pounds, right? How often did the patient lose 20 pounds? How often did the patient actually do an exercise course? How often did the patient change their, you know, what they ate? 
Okay? I would submit very infrequently. Right? So in a population health value world, you start thinking, who can I work with to help with a person losing weight, getting exercise, etc.? And so you begin to look at the world in terms of your patients and then the groups that they fit into. So your diabetics are in a particular group. Your behavioral health patients are a different group. Your you know, smoking cessation are, are in a different group. And you begin to recognize that you're taking care of an individual, but you have to apply those things to a smaller group that you're responsible for to improve the health. Now, what happens is the, the Twitter that just kind of went through, I don't mean the electronic Twitter, the because um, I don't understand Twitter, to be quite honest. But physicians, when they hear this, say, you know, boy, I'd love to do that, but I can't afford to see a patient for 30 minutes. And if you tell me my panel size is 600, I'm going to go out of business. I'm not paid to talk to the dietitian. I'm not paid to think about transportation issues and how I get my team to help take care of this patient, right? So you say, love to do it, can't afford to do it. If I do it, I'll go out of business. Does that resonate with everyone? Yes? Okay. But, and you're exactly right. In a fee-for-service world, you'd go out of business. You'd go out of business very, very quickly. And that's not good. This is why the government and everyone's talking about payment reform. So let's back up. The way to control costs is to change the way we practice medicine. We can't change the way we practice medicine given the way we're getting paid now. This is why we're having payment reform discussions. So, okay. Remember, see patient, get paid, fee for service, right? This looks so simple and so nice in, in, in the old world, doesn't it? Right? Well, new world, healthier patient, you get paid. This is what we are all signed up for in the next 20 years. Even if you didn't sign up for it, CMS has signed you up for it already. All right? So, Secretary Burwell said that 85% of Medicare fee-for-service payments will be tied to quality by 2016. Uh, folks, we are in 2016. 30% of Medicare payments will be tied to quality or value or alternative payment models by 2016. So if you think things are coming in the future, nope, they're here. We're talking about 50% by 2018. Just so we're clear, legislation has been signed, AMA has signed off, every medical school has signed off. We are moving into incentive payments. We are moving through there with um, ACOs, with APMs, with MACRA, you name it. We have signed up and it's all based on a value payment methodology tied to the quality metrics I've just shown you. Okay? Now, this is a slide that is very common in the insurance world. This is the value-based payment spectrum. Let me give you the code words here. 
When people talk about volume, they're talking about what? They're talking about fee for service. The government says, and everyone says, we are moving from volume to value. You'll hear that now over and over. Value means physicians and centers, IPOs, ACOs, everything else, moving into a financially responsible model. That's value. When you hear value, think about financial responsibility. And then this thing in between the path to value is this transition period that we're all in right now, saying, how do you move from fee-for-service over here to value? All right? And let me tell you, it's, uh, it's hard. So let me go through a, a, a pay, so let me go through a payment methodology so everyone understands how the dollars flow. Because if you don't understand how the dollars flow, you're not being able to play in this game and figure out how you're going to be successful. All right? So let's take Medicare Advantage. So CMS pays money to the insurer. Right? We all know that from before. Okay, what happens then? So the insurer then pays the claims in the standard way of Medicare Advantage now. And if the claims are above the benchmark, then the insurance carrier loses money. And they dip into their reserves for all the money that they charged in premiums the year before. Okay? If, however, they're working with a group of physicians, a group of hospitals, a group of whatever, and that book of business is below the benchmark, then they make money and they keep the difference and they put money in their reserves and they're happy for next, next year. That's the way it plays out now in a fee-for-service model. Okay, what's different when you move to value? Value meaning financial responsibility of the entity, of the physician entity, of the provider entity. All right, CMS pays the insurer. The insurer now does what? Pays the entity, pays the accountable care organization, pays the IPA, pays the physician group, pays whomever who is will, who's willing now to take financial responsibility. And if the claims for all of the patients at Dartmouth for a particular plan, if the claims were above the benchmark, then Dartmouth loses money. And they lose money until they hit something called a stop loss, which is a certain amount of loss, at which point the insurance carrier says, I'll now pay it. That's like a deductible. If, however, the physicians in this room, and the clinicians, and the hospital system are below the benchmark, then who gets to keep the profit? Not the insurance carrier, but the clinical organization. Make sense? Okay. This is what we're talking about. This is everything that Medicare is talking about for the next number of years. All right. Now, let's have a look here in terms of 
um, how most physicians in this room who have been trained in fee-for-service are thinking things are going to occur. So if everyone in this room, including myself, has been trained in fee-for-service, and you just saw that slide that I showed you, what you're thinking about is that no matter how I practice medicine by myself, I'm, in Dartmouth, is going to be above the, the benchmark, and we're going to lose money. Is that what everyone in this room thought as I showed that? Because that's what everyone else thinks. They think that in this situation, I will lose money. This is, this is a game. That's what people think. Well, if you now show this exact same scenario to physicians who have spent any time, like the 45,000 physicians in the, this humanity value network, and you show them this, they go to the bottom part of that discussion. They say, I know that I'll be below the benchmark. Now, do they believe they're going to be below the benchmark because they're all aspirational or because they're all delusional? Nope. It's because they've practiced population medicine before. And they know that it's not just the doctor's pen, which is important, but it's how you integrate with a whole bunch of other entities that allows you to control the health of the group that you're working with. Okay? What do I mean by integrated care? Okay? So remember that, that scenario I talked about in terms of the diabetic, go lose 20 pounds, take the insulin, right? That's not an integrated approach. An integrated approach of that person would be, can I send them to the YMCA so that they have an exercise class? Can I send them to somewhere else so they've got uh, teaching in terms of nutrition and, and dietitians? Are they doing something in terms of silver sneakers, exercise program? Are there other things I can do to modify their behavior? Because if you don't modify the behavior and engage the patient, are you going to be successful in making that person healthier? The answer is no. Has everyone taken care of diabetics in the old way? How successful were we? Not particularly, unless you engage them and engage others. So let's look at what is it that a physician can be responsible for in, in the world? Okay, we all went to medical school. Are these the things, if you look over here, in terms of what you think we can be responsible for? Can we, can we help with education? Yeah. Are we really good at patient education? Guys, let's be honest here. No, we're not. Are we particularly good at changing behavior and modifications of, of our patients? No, we're not. And all data would suggest that we're not. What role does the patient have in terms of this integrated care stuff? Well, the patient's got a lot of responsibility in terms of what he or she eats, in terms of them being educated, and then being willing to participate in their care. Everyone agree with that? Yeah? Okay. So what is this person with a money bag? I thought you'd all be amused by that. That's the insurer. That would be me, okay? What is it that payers do? Payers in the old world did what? We said no. You saw the slide. I showed you. We said no. We were told to say no. We said no. 
in this integrated approach in value, the fundamental difference is that the physician, the provider, the system begins to partner in a very close way with the insurer. The insurer, folks, has information and resources that you cannot actually appreciate unless you work inside the industry. So we have, analy we have analytics that would blow most people's minds away. We have 400 PhDs who literally work and think about how people's risk changes in particular situations and how you can predict what's going to happen and help the physician. Okay? That's the role of the payer in this new world. Let me show you. This is a dashboard that pops up in, for our physicians who are working in um, um, value relations when they are responsible for a patient population. Just have a quick look. So what you have here is you see that you can see for every diagnosis and in fact every single patient what the cost to you and your institution is for every single patient. You want to know what the monthly cost is? It's here. Do you want to know whether the patient had all the right quality measures done in the last six months? Do you want to know is the patient on time for their mammogram, had their flu shot, gotten their vaccinations? Have they had their hemoglobin A1Cs? Have you actually done something about the hemoglobin A1C? Have they gotten their prescriptions filled? This is the type of the data that every payer has. And if the provider is now financially responsible, would you not say this is the information that you would want so that you could take care of your population? Does that make sense? Okay. So this would give you an example of real-life data dashboards. Just so you're well aware, we have analytics that predict when a patient is going to fall, when a patient's going to have a complication, when the patient's going to cost you money. We're pretty good at that. So in risk world, you will get a notice from the payer saying, by the way, the orthopedic surgeon just gave your patient a narcotic. Given that your patient has diabetes, has peripheral neuropathy, and has Alzheimer's, we're a little worried about the potential likelihood of a fall. Now, you may not know about that as a primary care physician because it was done by the specialist over here. But if you want to have coordinated care, that's the, that's the data that, that you want. So what, what else does a payer do in this new world? You may sit with your panel of 600 and say, you know, transportation is our biggest problem. My patients aren't wealthy enough to have transportation. So for Humana, we actually have, believe it or not, we have just under, just under 500 buses in southern Florida because that's what 
the groups there identified was a problem. So all Medicare Advantage patients in Florida are picked up by small ambulance buses and taken to the primary care doctor and their specialist because that was the problem that people identified was preventing good health care. Health care is no longer just writing a prescription. Health care is taking care of that, that population. Other, other groups came to us and said, you know, I've got patients who don't seem to be willing to go to CVS and pick up their, their medicines. Can you write a policy so that every single patient in our plan has $0 co-pays for all generic drugs and all drugs related to, to diabetes? So if that's what is really needed to help control your population, that's what occurs. All right, so i give you some examples of how the world has fundamentally changed in terms of, of insurance. And it's not just um, writing policies and things, but large payers have very deep connections with people in, um, in, in areas. So we've got salsa classes and things like this, which sound kind of silly, but salsa classes, if you're in San Antonio, is really important in terms of losing weight and, and exercising. We've developed great partnerships with the CDC. Um, we've published papers with CDC, with Columbia, et cetera. And I know we're running out, running out of time, so let me be quick here. This transition's not, not easy. We work with the American, American Academy of Family Practitioners. Let me tell you, every family practitioner thinks this is gonna be a really tough transition, no question about it. But here's the important slide. This is three million members from Humana. And if you look, what you see is that in the fee-for-service, FFS, the quality score is 3.5. If you move people, providers, into value-based relations, financial responsibility, their quality scores go up 20% to 4.22. 5.0 is perfect. At the same time, folks, the global costs go down 18%. Let me say that again. Quality goes up 20%. Costs go down almost 20%. This system works. This is why CMS and everyone else is saying we're moving to these types of, of processes. Let me quickly do this video, and then I'll stop talking. Because Brian trained at the clinic, came and saw the quality of healthcare here, and what nearly what I've seen other places and I thought it would be a great place to come back and introduce great quality care. When I did come across with you, man, I did feel as though they're my enemies. You know, it's all these forms about EDIS measures and giving us start reports and our start reports were all red and looked like a stop line all the way on the paper. Terrible. A lot of these things I didn't see myself being able to control. Um, so I didn't see it was exactly fair to be graded on those things. I knew our staff working hard. I knew that I was working hard but wasn't able to make the distinction between those numbers and then what we were actually doing. And so when they first started here, I probably kicked them out two or three times, walked out uh, a few times. So David, I actually, and he picked me out of the office, um, I'd actually presented him with a check for provider rewards. Um, he refused the check, he did not take the check. That was kind of our turning point when I gave the check back was that it's not about the money, it's actually about taking care of, of, of people. I said, you know, I want to talk to your medical director. 
Okay. He came to Harry Hennessy from Boxville. The next thing I know, we're sitting right where we are today. So I came up here and a super guy who is very, very focused on his patients. And we talked about how value-based medical care is about the patients. It's not just about the insurance companies making money or him making money. It's getting paid for the value of keeping your patients healthy. That's what value-based care is about. It is about, oh yeah, it's about what we learned to do in medical school. Dr. Robertson took one look at this and said, this is good, and he jumped on board. He got it. Plus I understood kind of where Humana was coming from. I understood that they want the same thing I want, and we wanted the patient to be as well cared for as possible. With their new EMR systems, we're able to target those populations that are the sickest, and we're able to pull those in, we're able to see those people more often. It was not just changing our practice, but changing the culture of our patients and our community. That coming to the doctor when you're well is not a bad thing, and make sure that you're, you know, your colonoscopies and mammoths taking care of yourself is a good thing. And we've actually caught up to date about 57 or 58 cancers in the last year. Value-based here incorporates everybody at my team. It's truly affected every part of our practice for the good. People don't realize this when you kind of adopt this value-based system, it makes every other practice in the area better because you exist. And ultimately, the faith flourishes in that, and part of that is, you know, has helped me do my job and made me better at my job. Okay, so I'm going to stop and take a couple questions. Um, this is a small two-person group who's taking risk. It's not just that you've got to be a huge hospital system. And this is actually where we're all going. So, so thank you very much. I think just before we take questions, I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Rob Green to make a comment. Oh, thanks, Rich. Thanks, Dr. Beverage. That, that, was, that was truly excellent. Please stay, stay up here. Um, and I hope that people in the audience recognize many of the themes that you hear Jim Weinstein talk about, you hear me talk about. Our strategic maintenance, uh, matrix actually lists uh, population health management, value-based care, and payment reform as the top three things to work on. And people here in primary care will recognize our team model, which enables the team to take care of 2,500 patients while the doctor takes care of the top 500 yeah. patients, just like in your slide. So uh, I thought that was terrific. Um, this week, we've just rolled out virtual care for our employees Great. and uh, all sorts of things which, uh, which mess. So um, I have, do have one question. So first of all, again, thanks for excellent talk. He, he promised only to ask me easy questions, so, so yes, we're clear. Right. As a former colleague in the medical management uh, insurance company world. So uh, the, I love the idea of the insurance companies working with the uh, physicians, providers, and help, uh, help us a little bit more, if you could say, about that connection, how you get down to the community level and the actual feet on the street level. Yeah. So if you take Humana, we actually have 10,000 nurses. Um, we actually embed nurses in hospitals and in um, physicians' offices uh, to do things to basically make the practice, the hospital system more efficient. So Oshner, you all heard of Oshner. Oshner's a huge Humana you know, system. We have a lot of people working at Oshner to make sure that Oshner makes money. Because the better they do, I'll say it again, the better we do, and oh, by the way, the patients actually all do, do better in terms of health. There's not, you know, it's, I gotta tell you, it's a really nice place for us collectively to move into. There's not many times that you can get the patient healthier, spend less money, um, and you know, for the entire system to do better. Now, to be truthful, the only people who really get hurt in this 
are people who make expensive drugs in hospitals. Because the hospital bed day use is going to decrease. And that's where a lot of the savings comes from. But with a 25% over hospital capacity right now, this is happening. So I hope that answers your question. Yes, sir. So one of the things that I think drives us as an institution crazy and primary care crazy is um, that there are so many different targets based on the insurer. And so I'm wondering in terms of this new cooperative collaborative yep. world, yep. if there's a thought of insurers, payers collaborating, cooperating in a way that actually sets so. a single set so. targets and where if you have a practice that is not 100% dramatic and it has six other payers, that, that there's those nurses, the other yep. center of support. So the first thing that I did when I joined Humana three years ago was I went to CMS and said, what I'd like to do is have quality metrics that are standardized between CMS and Humana and the rest of the, the, the payer world. Could we do that? The lawyers told me I was going to go to jail by saying this. Um, so we worked with AHIP, which is a not-for-profit group. We brought CMS and all the major payers together, and there's a paper with my name um, we've actually started to roll this out. Every major payer has now agreed to standard quality metrics, and CMS has agreed to use the exact same metrics. So we've just started. We've got 10 diseases right now, and we're beginning to roll those out. So that the paper was written four months ago, and we've all agreed to start implementing those next year to that exact point, because you have to have standardization. We will compete with United or Aetna or anyone else, but it shouldn't be that every provider's got to have different quality metrics from me and Aetna and everyone else. That's craziness. So yes, yes. Let's take that. Yes, sir. Ma'am. Hey, um, thank you for your talk. You know, for the past 50 years, nurse practitioners, there's been studies that have shown that nurse practitioners provide cost-effective and high-value healthcare. Yep. And I'm wondering, um, with 10,000 new Medicare patients joining every day, um, the role of the nurse practitioner and advanced clinician is going to continue to increase. No question. Yes, sir. Don't you not, don't ask me a transplant question. Mm -hmm. no, no. Next question. In the value-based care system, the outcome is based on the value of the patient. Yes. Yep. If that doesn't happen, the physician the ACL is in. Yep. We're missing a big part of the model, which is patient compliance. Yep. And that's a major part of care. You know, we can yep. get the insulin for free, we can get them to their appointment, but they don't take the insulin. Yep. If the physician of the model is yep. in. Are analytics being designed to approach that? And how do you approach that from a payer standpoint? So we have lots of programs to engage people. There's a lot of social studies that show that you really can engage a much higher proportion of patients. You're never going to engage everyone. No question. But the proportion of people who you can engage is much, much higher than what it is right now. This gets back to the same thing in terms of transportation. Some people don't engage because they can't get to you. Others can't, can't engage for a whole bunch of other reasons. We've got to identify them. We've got to look at from the consumer standpoint and figure it out from their standpoint why they're not seeing us. That's collectively, because otherwise they end up in the hospital. 
And a $20,000 hospitalization is really expensive compared to $500 in going, picking them up and paying for transportation for the year, as an example. We have time for just very brief. So I didn't actually, gonna, I wasn't going to take your question because three people have had their hands up. We'll do it very quickly. First you. Okay. Then we'll go to Paul, and then we'll come over to Don. Okay, so I've always thought that there is a fair amount of inflationary um, increase in medical costs. And I don't know that that's addressing that. It's addressing costs at any one point in time, but it's not addressing you know, the huge increase that we're seeing in what things cost. And it always seemed to me that the more things cost, the more everyone seemed to make for us in terms of the rate and, and that sort of thing. I don't know what's being done about that. Uh, I think that the inflationary pressure has been decreased the last three years, but has certainly picked up this year. And I suspect because of the more robust economy, it's going to continue to increase, would be my guess. Other, other industries have responded to unsustainable costs by opening the market and by deregulation. So we get our steel from China, any airline can carry US passengers. What about healthcare? I mean, would it be bad for value to have like radiologists? Yeah, we're, yeah, we're not going to see sending everyone to China for uh, for surgery. That's not going to happen. But let me tell you what is going to happen. We're going to have nurse practitioners practicing at the higher level of their licenses. We're going to have medical assistants practicing at the higher end of their licenses. We're going to bump up everyone to the top level of their licenses so they're taking care of more sophisticated patients than they currently are. And we as physicians will be taking care of the very complex people. That's how we're going to deal with it. Oh. Thank you very much. Um, uh, talking about value, improved outcomes over increasing costs, it, it works, you know, in our, you know, in a population that you're defining. But what about the? It seems like healthcare is working in a how we deliver healthcare is like in a bubble or a silo, mm -hmm. where um, you know. Uh, we can't talk about, about the entire population because there are so many things outside of how we deliver healthcare that really accounts for the population health. And it's all the social and behavioral determinants. We have poverty, which affects how people actually, yep. you, know, uh, you know, get their care, get to their care, respond to their, you know, it's it's a bigger issue than just how we find it. I, I, I agree 100%, but think about the smoking example. We as a society said smoking is just not acceptable, and there's a, there was a huge public endeavor. That's an example of us as a society working to significantly reduce all of those, those effects. That's the type of stuff we do. We're, we're not going to take care of all poverty. We're not going to have job employment for every single one in, in this, um, but we're going to be moving in the right direction. Final question from Don. Um, since risk pooling works because um, it, it avoids cost shifting, yep. could you say something very briefly, not on the political realm, but just on the theoretical value of a single payer um, uh, sure. public financing scheme? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at what's happening right now, 60 to 70% of healthcare is now paid for by the government. So you may not want to say that we've got a single payer now or whatever, but when 60 to 70 percent of payments are being made by the, by, by the government, 
we actually have one entity which is really, really big and strong. What's happening in, say, Medicare Advantage is that you've got United, you've got all these different companies who are executing government policy, which is in the, 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 that, I think, is where we're going in, in terms of an increasing amount of control by the government. If you look at ACA, we've got 10 million or 11 million or whatever number it is at this point. Those people are now also being paid for by the government. And I think we're going to see over time increasing um, uh, government control in, in how those folks are being taken care of. So I'm not sure we're going to have a single payer system, but I think we'll have a single, we're going to get closer to having a really, really big payer that is going to mandate a lot of the things that, that we're going to be responsible for. I, I hope that answered some of your question. Well, it, it, it answers much, but it doesn't um, address the question of everybody and nobody out. Yeah, that's a political question. No, it is not. Uh, I, I, I'm, from, <laughs> I'm not smart enough to answer. All right, final comments, Elizabeth or Scott? Any final summation of uh, anything you'd like to say? Thank you. Just to thank him, thank you, Roy, for coming today. And, Thanks very much. And reinforcing what we're doing.